1: Good morning. It is Wednesday, February 2nd, the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord. You're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. We have a great show planned for you today, as we usually do. And in the second part of the show, we're going to have a conversation with Robert Mixa, who works for... Word on Fire. He's currently the St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Fellow of Catholic Education at the Word on Fire Institute. Uh, He has an undergraduate level degree from St. Louis University. Uh, He began working with Bishop Barron and Word on Fire as a research assistant after his graduation in 2012, uh, in 2009, worked till 2012, and ended back up at word on fire. So what you're
0: telling us this morning, Deacon Mike, is we have one degree of separation between us and Bishop Barron,
1: right? Exactly. During the conversation, we are this close. Close. Unbelievable. But before we get to that, as always, I want to welcome everybody listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn-Bryan College Station, and... Our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lerina, Waco. And a shout out to everybody in Palestine listening on KINF 107.9 FM. We're live this morning, so if there's something you would like to share about what's going on at your parish, feel free to give us a call, 85-LOVE-RED-SEA. That's 855-683-7332. Now, As usual, I'm joined in the studio by our station director, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. Good morning, Thaddeus. How are you? Well, Deacon Mike. How are you? I am doing great. But we're also blessed having Dennis Maka, our president, back in the chair as producer. I think he comes in to keep an eye on the two of us. I think he does. I I I try.
0: I started laughing because the way you say... My title every time. I can't ever tell if you're saying it with uh,
1: honor or with disdain. Honor, always with honor. Okay, you earned that title. Okay, and uh, I think uh, especially when we're talking about subjects that that doctorate applies to. It's important to know that you actually know what you're talking about. Oh, well, that's that's what now when you're talking to your wife, that might be a totally different situation.
0: Yeah, I, I usually don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> especially when it comes to scheduling.
1: Uh, oh, oh, yes. Where are we supposed to be right now? Mm. Where am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to be doing? Right. Yes,
0: exactly. But uh, yeah, why are we talking to? Robert Mixa in the second part of the show. What's it connected to?
1: Well, if you will remember, last month we discussed the history behind Vatican II. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to follow up that conversation with a little more de- in-detail conversation <coughs> about what happened at Vatican II mm-hmm. and why it's important to us today, especially since we're celebrating the 60th anniversary of the beginning of the council. Uh we're also going to have a conversation this morning with uh, Kevin Kopczynski who has an important thing coming up at St. Joseph. Kevin, are you on? I am. Good morning, Kevin. Uh, tell us a little bit about Purify. When is it going to be? Oh my- What's it all about?
2: Oh, my goodness. Thank you for having me on, first of all. And I'm honored to be in the presence of a good doctor and the president uh, in the chair and uh, you, as well Deacon, so thank you for having me um, purified is is gosh it's a great event for for young people and for their families um, it's kind of designed for those who are between seventh seventh grade and twelfth grade um, and it's it's a chastity talk at at its heart, but it's done so so well because in all honesty, if we're being honest as gentlemen um, it's it's very typical for us as you know growing up to not have had a great uh, sexual education, uh, talk with our parents. And so this is, this is a, it creates some inroads for that in a non-awkward way, and in a way that it's, it is in keeping with the teachings of the Church, with theology of the body. And we have this guest speaker who's coming, Jason Ebert. <laughs> um, but he's spoken on pretty much every continent except for Antarctica, I'm pretty sure, about this topic. So he's pretty well known, uh, and he does a great, great job. I've been to one of these events before. And um just the amount of healing that can happen uh, when good, frank, honest conversations can happen around this subject, it's so healthy to watch these families come back together again and to to grow together and to um, really really have an opportunity, like I said for healing, but not only healing but for good catechesis uh, to actually understand what it means to live chastity um, regardless of whether it be in dating or single life or priesthood or whatever it might be, right? So anybody who, go, who, anybody who comes uh, is sure to have a great time and to learn something. Um, so I, I'm really excited about it. I'm, I'm hoping we get a lot of people, but it's happening on February 15th, that's a Tuesday, uh, at Christ the Good Shepherd Chapel in Bryan on Coulter. Um, and it'll happen from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. So the first hour is, consists of this talk, like I say, but the second hour consists of an opportunity for those to go to confession, and uh, to adore our Lord Lord in Eucharistic adoration. So, um, it's kind of the total package. We get a little bit of a sacramental combo there. Um, I'm sorry, you're hearing my kiddo cry.
1: (laughs) Don't apologize (laughs) about that. Don't apologize (laughs) about that. Uh, uh, One one of the things I was going to ask you is, you know, it's a chastity event, and there may be some adults going, well, you know, it's important for my kids to go to this, but... You know, why should I go? And I think one of the important things is in our culture today, this is a topic we don't talk about at all. At I, all. And so I think uh, one of the reasons we ask parents to go or adults to go is to know how to enter into these conversations.
2: Absolutely. It creates scaffolding is what I like to call it for parents to climb up on and use. Uh, And I feel like many parents that I talk to about this subject and others, they feel that they don't have kind of the power or the knowledge that they need to actually enter into these vulnerabilities with their own kids um, and have an honest, frank conversation, like we said. Um, So this, this event, it's able to provide some scaffolding for those families to, as I said, climb up on and really start to build a really good, healthy education around this subject. It's excellent.
1: Now, Kevin, is there a cost for this event?
2: There is. The tickets are $20 per ticket. So if it's a parent and a kiddo going, it would be $40, one per person. Um, and all of those proceeds go directly. You're going to get a big old bag of books and things. So you, you don't walk away empty-handed. The parents get a bag. The kids get a bag. Uh, and so there's lots of giveaways, and uh, all of the other proceeds go to pay for like his, his flight um, and hotel stay, that kind of stuff. Nobody's really making any money on the deal, and he's using it to feed his feet of family. So it's good stuff.
1: Uh, now, if someone's interested in going, how do they go about purchasing a ticket in advance?
2: Great. You can go to chastity.com purified, and uh, under their events there, you'll see there's one in Bryan. You just click the Bryan one and buy tickets. Um, and that's, that's the easiest way is to go to their website there. Um, and then we have flyers around at the various parishes in the College Station Bryan Deanery. Uh, and then I plan on putting and making sure that it's on the home page of the St. Joseph website as well if it's not already. Uh, but the easiest way, as I said, is go to chastity.com/ purified.
1: Purified
2: Purified. Yes, sir.
1: okay. Uh, again, uh, this is Tuesday, February 15th, from yes, six sir. to eight, and it's mm-hmm. Christ the Good Shepherd. Correct. Very good. Well, you've got six MACAs already registered, ready to go, Uh, Kevin. We're very excited. Some of my kids have actually seen Jason Everett in person, and they are just so blown away by his content, his presentation. It's a rare, I don't think people know how rare an event it is for him to come into your local area. So those in Waco, even Palestine, you're not too far to drive all the way here, hour, hour and a half, two hours to hear Jason Everett talk. It is very worth your while. Um, he's very dynamic and it, he's known for this worldwide. And so he's, oh, of course. he's the preeminent speaker on, on this to teens, especially these days. And so very high demand. So please consider coming from out of town. If you haven't already signed up. Absolutely. And again, this is so counter cultural. It is something that's desperately needed to, assist in having these conversations when these subjects come up and the only information our young people have gotten is from the secular world and social media, and it is so counter to what the church's position on chastity and sexuality are. So it's important for us to take this opportunity and learn from it.
2: That's right. And if you think about it, who gets more of their time in terms of information and, and education? Right? It's not the church. In a lot of ways, it's it's you know, social media. It's the TV. It's the computer. It's the phone. It's everything else. Right? And so, this kind of provides an opportunity to to begin to reorient one's life around the idea of chastity, um, as it's defined in the Catechism. And, it's, and it there is no duplicity allowed in chastity, um, as it says in there. And it's it's it really it really provides a good jumping off point for a lot of families to begin anew um, in a place where maybe they were struggling, they can start over. Uh, And as a side note, it's really good for parents too, uh, because a lot of these parents, I don't know about you guys, but a lot of parents haven't gotten this talk themselves. You know what I mean? So they're having to go back and relearn how to date their own wives and their spouses. You know what I mean? So it's really kind of cool to watch these dads and these moms. Learning alongside their kids, um, but it, like you say, it's countercultural. It's maybe the first time they've heard this, but once you hear it, it clicks and it makes sense, and you want more. So it begins a jump. It begins a good jumping off point uh, for lots of families. Please, please come.
1: Yes, and I'm hoping there will be lots of uh, good conversations on the drive home from the event. <laughs>
2: there you go.
1: One more time with the uh, details, Kevin. Just one last
0: time. Yes,
2: sir. So purified. It's an event. Chastity presentation from Jason Everett, a world famous speaker on the subject, preeminent as Deacon says, and it will be happening at Christ the Good Shepherd Chapel on February 15th, Tuesday, February 15th from 6 to 8, um, and we would love to see you there. It's $20 per ticket. To buy your tickets, go to chastity.com purified. Again, that's chastity.com purified.
1: All right, Kevin, thank you very much for filling us in on this, and I hope we get lots of response to this.
2: Of course. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate y'all.
1: You You bet, Kev. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
2: All right. Take care.
1: And as we prepare to head to our break, brief uh, note on what we're celebrating this morning, uh, February 2nd. Uh, It is the presentation of our Lord, which traditionally was the end of the Christmas season uh, Mm -hmm. in Poland and um – Somebody told me that Robert Mixa is a big fan of everything Polish. So I think he's—I think his spouse is Polish. Yes, she is. So well, we'll I'll have to talk to him about yeah. this. If he uh, took down his Christmas, we lights took our this Christmas morning.
0: decorations down over the weekend.
1: Yes, but anyway, the presentation of the Lord celebrates Jesus being taken to the temple right. for the redemption. Yes, that was required of all Jewish firstborns. Yes, and so it is seen as the light of the world entering the temple, mm. and this is why it used to be called Candle Mass, because mm-hmm. all the candles for the churches used to be blessed on the 2nd of February. Right. And so, uh, it's still a tradition. Some people keep up, but um, I think it's primarily important because, in a way, we can look at our baptism as being our presentation to the temple that when we enter into the family of God and we receive the light of the world, which is part of the baptismal rite, that we are asked to take that light out into the world just as Mary and Joseph did after the presentation. Yeah. So it's something to be mindful of. And
0: I'll just mention real quickly that, remember, this is a mystery of the rosary. It's a this joyful
1: is. mystery that we're, we're yes. also celebrating today. Yes. Just a little connection there. So. Anyway, we're going to be back shortly. Talk to Robert Mixa from uh, Word on Fire Institute. And uh, don't forget, uh, we're going to be talking about Vatican II. So this is a fascinating uh, conversation. We'll see you all on the other side. And we're back. You're listening to the Red Sea Roundup on Red Sea Catholic Radio. And I'm your host, Deacon Mike Bobay. And as promised, in a second, we're going to start talking to Robert Mixa, who's currently the St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Fellow of Catholic Education at the Word on Fire Institute. Uh, Robert studied philosophy at an undergraduate level at St. Louis University, He worked for Bishop Barron and Word on Fire as a research assistant and then marketing assistant after graduation between 2009 and 2012, when the 10-part Catholicism series, which we all know and love, was released. uh, He then studied theology at a graduate level at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute at the Catholic University of America. Following his studies, he worked at Mundelein Seminary north of Chicago. Then he moved across the street to the high school theology and philosophy uh, classes at Carmen, uh, Carmel Catholic High School. He and his wife currently live in Dallas, where he works for the Word on Fire Institute. Uh, apparently, Robert has a fascination with all things Polish, and his wife is from Poland. So, good morning, Robert. I have a question for you. Now, was the fascination with all things Polish prior to you marrying someone from (laughs) Poland or afterwards?
3: You know, uh, prior, uh, I grew up on uh, the south side of Chicago, and there's, like, this huge Polish community out there. You know, at one point, it was second to Warsaw. So as a kid, I was just um, surrounded with all things Polish. I mean, John Paul II's picture was everywhere. I mean, it's one of the only places, I think, outside of Poland— that you still celebrate uh, Fat Tuesday with ponchki. So um, I thought everybody in the United States had those, but I I realized how Polish Chicago was when I I left Chicago. So, yeah, I mean, my fascination uh, predated me to my wife, but as you might know, when you get married to a Polish gal, um, you kind of take on the Polish identity. So (laughs) I have.
1: Now, it was kind of interesting. Uh, today, we're celebrating the presentation of the Lord, and I was reading somewhere that in Poland, that still to this day, uh, the feast marks the end of the Christmas season. So, since you yeah. love all things Polish, uh, did you t- take down your Christmas lights this morning?
3: Yeah, actually, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, and my wife reminded me again, too, that this is officially the end of Christmas now, um, and I better get mass. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I didn't know that prior to meeting my wife, but yeah, I, I, I love it how, you know, they actually have Poland. I, I mean, Poland actually still respects the season, and uh, it's a pretty long one. So I love Christmas. So um, I, don't, I don't have anything to object to.
1: Well, I think this is one of the wonderful things about our uh, Catholic faith is the fact that we have a season of Christmas That is intended just to celebrate the season, not to buy presents or to decorate, but just to celebrate the birth of our Lord. That's
3: right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 we'll talk about this later, but really entering into the the mystery of each of the seasons. I mean, it's just so much fruit and it's just a pity that, you know, with Christmas, all uh, uh, Christmas Day, the 25th, all things kind of come to an end here. I mean that's just the beginning.
1: So yes. Now the topic for this morning uh, is uh, Vatican II, and uh, you had done an interview with Father Blake Britton, who wrote the book "Reclaiming Vatican II," and uh, one of the things that you know, I was thinking that's so important about when we talk about Vatican II, is the very fact that we need to talk about reclaiming it because there's so much confusion as to what Vatican II actually did or was intended to do. Is that right?
3: Oh, yeah. well, for sure. You um, Just a little antidote. I mean, I, I grew up um, going through Catholic schools most of my life, and I always heard about the council, um, and they always stressed uh, that we're a school that in the spirit of Vatican II, but there was so much confusion about it and it wasn't until i like later in my life actually read the documents that i recognized that there's kind of a disconnect and the things that i was told for most of my life were actually what vatican ii was either going for or actually did legitimate um just they were not found within the documents um for the most part and um yeah so there's great confusion but as you mentioned, Father Blake Britton's book, I mean, we really need to do, uh, we really need to focus on reclaiming the council because there's so much confusion um, out there. And um, I'm, I'm talking about, um, you know, not only uh, Catholics who are possibly a little bit more progressively minded, uh, but also some more traditionally minded Catholics. Um, there's just a lot of talk about the council without actually delving into what we have in the in the actual documents themselves.
1: And I find it ironic that when you look at the conversations in today's, uh, today's Catholic sphere uh, between, you know, the tension of modernity and tradition and how that's actually what the Council was intended to address. How do yeah. we navigate yeah. that tension?
3: Yeah. And you know, I mean, the council. I mean, it's interesting that prior to the council, um, that Pius the I think eleventh Pope's before the council, and Pius the twelfth were thinking about calling a council, and um, they decided not to do it at that moment because in the early twentieth century there was um, a big crisis, which was around. It was called modernism, and that's a pretty big big term. But the the modern modernist controversy. Uh, was kind of about, in some ways capitulating to to the modern world in many respects and kind of historicizing the gospel. But what you're going see what you see in the council was actually not so much capitulating to the world, but actually bringing the world into Christ himself. And so you'll see oftentimes throughout it's always in the gospel, in Christ. And um, yeah, I mean, I think there's an appreciation were certain uh, things that came to, um, came to light in modernity, but what the Council is trying to do is actually give those things, like, for example, religious liberty, a more Christological, uh, secure foundation. So it, it's not capitulating to to the world, but it's actually bringing the world into Christ, which is, is um, what the Church is all about.
1: And I think this is so much of what we miss when we talk about the council most of the time is the idea that the council wasn't trying to change the church the council was trying to communicate what the church has always been in language that's understandable to everyone
3: yeah um you know this is the council um 21st ecumenical council um is the first council uh, not to have any anathemas, which is like you state there is a statement usually of some position, and uh, then anath- anathema was given. Um, and there's no condemnations here, but there's a very different style. Um, and John O'Malley has a good book on this. Um, um, I forget the exact name of the uh, the book, but it, um, it's on this kind of more rhetorical, persuasive. Um, pastoral style of the council, which is, you know, we're trying to communicate the richness of Christ and His Church, and so that's very different, um, but when you read, you read the documents, you you, have, um, you kind of see the beauty of the faith, and that's what they, they really want, the, the, church, the council fathers really wanted to do, was to, to persuade people into the beauty of the faith, and then to be disciples in bringing the light of Christ to the world.
0: Uh, Bob, this is Thaddeus. As another way of people helping people understand this, talk a little bit about how one of the principles of the Word on Fire Institute, which is affirmative orthodoxy, tries to carry out this rhetorical style and method into what it does, and and kind of makes it makes it real.
3: Yeah. So, like the Word on Fire Institute, I mean, a lot of this affor- affirmative orthodoxy language is coming from Bishop Aaron's uh, book. Uh, the priority of Christ, um, and which what we're trying to do, the word orthodox, uh, which means, like, right glory, um, can be right right praise, right belief. Um, We're trying to actually, like, orientate people to Christ. Um, We're trying to um, evangelize. And um, we see that uh, the affirmative part of that is not like, okay, well, we've got these, you know, uh, we have the faith here, and yet we have to offer an apology, not in the sense of like a defense, but in some ways like saying, "Well, oh, I'm sorry, we, this is just what we are. We have to hold, and we're kind of embarrassed about the faith, um, which you sometimes find um, amongst certain presentations of the church, church's teachings, there's just kind of this embarrassment. No, what we're trying to do is say, no, actually, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. Actually, we have the fullness of Christ. We have the fullness of God. And the beauty of that, we want to communicate to you, in its fullness. So, I think a lot of that is, um, is what was going on in the Council as well. So, we see the Word on Fire Institute, and this is one of the reasons we actually uh, republished um, the Vatican II collection, and we'll be coming out with the decrees and declarations uh, after uh, the constitutions. Um, we're trying to kind of uh, really introduce people to this affirmative orthodoxy that is within the Council itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at Gaudium et Spes number 10 right here, and and the, Mm. the council writes, the church firmly believes that Christ, who died and was raised up for all, can through his spirit offer man the light and the strength to measure up to his supreme destiny. Nor has any other name under heaven been given to man by which it is fitting for him to be saved. So right there, the council is saying, we have the truth and the fullness of the truth goodness and beauty that can make man realize who he is supposed to be and make him happy and we're not flinching away from saying that this is the true religion we're just presenting it in a in a new a new manner
3: yes I'm so glad you brought that um, yeah. uh, um, passage 10 of goding that Spez up because yeah I mean when you look at in goding that is one of those of di- um, cast- that oftentimes um, the people are very kind of scared about delving into. um, But it's just so Christological and eschatological at the same time. There's no doubt, the Church has no doubt here that Christ is the only name on the heaven that leads to salvation. And uh, you'll see this in later uh, um, post-conciliar papacies, like during John Paul II's, And uh, Benedict XVI and now Pope Francis, where it's very clear that it's only through Christ that we attain our salvation. Now that doesn't that doesn't mean that you know rays of truth and light are found outside of the Catholic Church, um, but it's it's actually and we can get maybe into this a little later with Lumen Gentium, but it's very clear that it's only through Christ. Um, I remember, I think it's Dominus Jesus, mm-hmm. Not that um, the Apostolic exhortation. when that came came out um, a number of years ago, I think it was two thousand. all right. of these people got upset. Um, I mean, I was in I was not even in high school then, so I don't even know all of the like discussions back then. but I remember when I was studying at the undergraduate level, um, many kind of um, theology professors were presenting John Paul II with that as if he was departing from the council. But no, I mean, it, it, it's actually, that's exactly what the council is going for. So.
0: Yeah. I, I, I remember, remember I was uh, in between undergraduate and graduate school when it came out, and I remember <laughs> pumping my fist in the air at, at that document. I thought it was so outstanding and, and such a clear presentation of, of the truth. And, and like you said, un, unapologetic unapologetic about the truth
1: of the the church. Deacon Mike? Going briefly back to uh, Gaudium et Spes, uh, and just the title, uh, which translates joy and hope, and I think this so much speaks to what the intent of that document is, Mm -hmm. to remind Mm -hmm. the world that the church isn't there to, be a downer, say, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. It's intended to remind the world that we will find joy and hope if we live according to what the church teaches.
3: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. And and finding our unity in Christ and showing forth um, Christ to the whole world. Um, right. You know, that's, that's, that's our joy. That's our, that's our hope. Um, and, you know, um, kind of going back a little bit to some. There was a there was a lot of controversy um, about God in that space during the council, um, but you know a, a lot of it actually was kind of about uh, the second. You'll see in the second part, which starts I think in, after passage forty six, when it talks about some kind of um, um not the the non doctrinal issues. Um, about some like technological issues, economic issues, um, and I remember reading—I um, think it was Cardinal Ratzinger at the time—writing that his hesitation was kind of a little bit about the um, positivity on technology that the council was giving and not stressing its ambiguity. So it's—it's it's not um, there. There wasn't for him like a problem with that whole first part, which is the, the proper way of then reading the entire document. But there were some concerns there. Um, but still, I mean, this docu- document is, is is beautiful,
1: how it sets things up. But going back to uh, Word on Fire, Word on Fire is all about using technology in the proper mm-hmm. way to share basically the idea of the, what the council had of, you know, bringing the Christ into the world.
3: That's right, yeah. Um, and, you know, without forgetting the ambiguity at the same time, am, I'm, I'm always reminding some of my colleagues about um, something uh, Marshall McLuhan said, that the, the, the medium is the message. Um, and uh, w- um, here at Word on Fire, we, we try to be mindful, too, of actually... Not just using any technology, but seeing well what are the what are the limitations of each of these media and we see we see basically our job through the media as sending out little kind of signs and reminders to people of Christ um, and so we don't we don't try to have too much um, i think uh, we, we, we don't try to underplay the ambiguity of it and see it as like uh, a new means of salvation. Um, but uh, we try to to see it in its uh, proper context.
1: I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup, and we're speaking with Robert Mixa, who's currently the St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Fellow of Catholic Education at the Word on Fire Institute, and we're taking a little closer look at Vatican II. Um, one thing that we always hear about the council is some people claim that it wasn't a legitimate council. Some people claim that, you know, it was intended to modernize a church uh, rather than modernizing the message and all this. But there was pretty much unanimity in the council on these documents. For instance, the numbers to Sacrosanctum Concilium when they approved the vote was 2,147 to 4. That's pretty much a unanimous voice of the Church, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to bring that up as well. And it seems like, you know, the issue that many people like um, blame Vatican two for is, is changing the liturgy. And um, there was a call for kind of a reform, uh, but a lot of the things people object to um, which is not actually in Sacrosanctum Concilium, but it was later in the, um, the form of the liturgy under the title of uh, what's called Concilium, which happened much later um, in the 1960s. And there was controversy even then. And so what you see with like Pope Benedict XVI and what he was calling for a reform of the reform was trying to correct some of those things to return to what actually... Uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, was calling for.
0: Uh, Bob, um, talk a little bit about if you can. I I discovered this when I looked at Stephen Bullivant's book Mass Exodus. But it seems to me that even before Sacrosanctum Concilium was approved and and you know published, that. Because of the media age in which the council was taking place, word got out that reform of the liturgy was on the table, and dioceses and theologians and liturgists kind of locally on the ground started pushing for, and even instituting, what they anticipated was going to be the reform, and then that had sort of a a snowball effect on how the document or that not a snowball but that that sort of set in place how the document was going to be received and and interpreted once it was actually published is that is that correct
3: yeah i i better look at the that's that's mass exodus right when yeah Revolver yeah talks about, about yeah. It. yeah um yeah you know it's interesting um my good friend dennis uh dr dennis mackenmere about Sacrosectum Concilium and the whole history around this, um, I would recommend Liturgy Guys podcast. Yeah. They're really good on this stuff. Um, but, you know, prior to the Council, I mean, this this was in the air. The liturgical movement mm-hmm. um, and, um, was already kind of um, off and running, but you you had some strands and interpretations of that movement that tended to actually—that wasn't a proper understanding of it— which you find in Sacrosanctum Concilium, um, and so yeah, it doesn't surprise me that um, that actually, when the media was talking about a reform of the liturgy, that some people would just get up and go and and do whatever they they thought uh, was necessary. I mean, I'm 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 thinking too. Uh, I mean, I'm from from Chicago, and in the archdiocese of Chicago, um, uh, there were already churches that were in a way interpreting like. A lot of this reform, in their own own way, they're gutting out a lot of the churches. Um, even during the council, before a lot of this stuff came um, came out, and you didn't really have a good. Uh, I think the the cardinal who participated in the council um, from Chicago, um, who was actually there to see what was going on, he died shortly shortly after. The end of the council, so there wasn't like a good implementation of it
0: mm-hmm.
3: Um, mm-hmm. in Chicago, and um, but but yeah, I mean, if you look at some of the um, the the problems, even with um, ecclesial architecture, with doctor which Doctor Dennis Macnamara can get into uh, sometime for you guys, maybe um, he he was saying that a lot of that was beginning in the fit in the fifties and forties. Uh, so it wasn't like oh something happened at the council. Then you know. Therefore, you know the 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 cause. The council is the cause of all these 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 problems. Um, a lot of the stuff was already kind of in the air. Um, and also, just to kind of mention, Pope Benedict makes a lot of this and out of this. And you'll see in the writings of on of Henri de Lubac, um, who was also a theologian at the council. Um, there was a council of the media. Um, so, uh, for example, the. I don't think the council fathers realized the um, power of mass media.
0: I think you're right.
3: Um, yeah, and, you know, for example, in his journal on the council, Yves Congar um, actually told the story of one of the bishops from France um, who encountered one of the, I think it was the French Minister of Culture, came up to him um, and said to him, Why are you guys changing everything? You're changing everything. And that that's when the moment the bishop realized, actually... Something else is being communicated to the people, and precisely through uh, mass media. A, a good book on this actually is fa- uh, Father Thomas Garino's "The Disputed Teachings of Vatican II: uh, Continuity and Reversal in Catholic Catholic Doctrine," and he explains a lot of this um, and why there was such a poor implementation of it. Um, so,
1: but one of the things we talked about uh, last month when. Uh but Thaddeus and I were talking about this is the fact that when we look at the council, we have to understand that it is situated in a world movement that was heading in a certain direction. And, you know, the council was being understood in light of what people thought the world was moving towards rather than what the council said. It was, this is where the world's going, uh, you know, sex, rock, uh, uh, drugs and rock and roll and, you know, uh, political liberties in all areas and all these things that were driving the culture. And I think uh, a lot of the council was just swept up or at least the news of the council was swept up in all of that.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I, I totally agree with you. And I don't think there was much of an awareness of that. Um, but also, I mean, if you look at the way the 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 media was interpreting it, yeah, it was according to that that kind of trajectory of of modern culture uh, with this kind of stress on a certain understanding of liberation, but totally disconnected from uh, interpreting that in the light of the gospel. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um unfortunately, um there are all these things within the culture. That tended to basically be the lens through which people were interpreting the council. Um and sometimes you find the language that's used, like you'll find some some things that John the twenty third says um to actually lead to a certain ambiguity where actually it almost seems like this progressive um agenda that you're finding in uh this cultural movement is something maybe he he's falling into. Um, but I think when you interpret it in the light of the gospel you see well that's that's not that's that's not exactly the case,
1: and I think this is where that whole notion of the spirit the council comes from there's no such thing. Yeah. the council is what the council says it is, and yet when it's being discussed, hardly anyone discusses, okay, this is what this council says it's always this is what the council meant to say mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, and
3: yeah you'll see. Oh, sorry.
1: No, no. Keep, keep going, Bob. That's fine.
3: Well, I mean, you you'll find that uh, like the implementation of the council was kind of uh, done by people, uh, some people who who yeah, they wanted the council to say something which was not the what you find in the documents. Um, maybe it was brought up during the discussions, but then later that actually they, they uh, actually was the way that uh, it was interpreted. So, for example, I mean. Um, Uh, D.L. Schindler and Nicholas Healy have done a lot of good work on Dignitatis Humanum and how to uh, properly—they've actually provided a a very good translation of the Latin text showing that even the the current English translation that we have here, that's even, I think, up on the Vatican website still, isn't very representative of actually what's in the document. Mm. Um, And so what ended up happening was a lot of the uh, interpretation of the Council— was actually sometimes based on um, a schema that the that or a draft that was never accepted, but actually had to go through major revisions.
0: Um, hey Bob, so, can I can I pause you right there? Could you yeah. kind of zoom out a little bit and just lay out in in brief form for listeners what are you what are you referring to as when you speak of schema and how were yeah. these documents? How did they come to be? Just give that general. Um, outline of that.
3: Sure, sure. Yeah. So um like when uh, uh, John the twenty third called the council, he had like a commission put together that um on different topics. Um and so there are different topics that the bishops are going to talk about. Um so we'll just take one instance. Um uh Dave Urban which is the dogmatic constitution um on on revelation um had uh it started with a schema called De Fontibus, which was basically like a first draft that was presented. Okay. And in the first session, what you have to have with the council fathers uh have to debate the draft and then they have to vote on it. And then uh, what they do is there's a vote which is like they, they actually have to reconsider it only if it gets a two two thirds negative vote. Um and so if it if it um it, it's not accepted at first it goes through various uh other drafts so when we're talking about scheme, Schemata, schema um those are various drafts and they they have debates in each of the sessions um, you know for example uh, Godin at spez which was pretty pretty controversial uh, that had thirteen um I think uh, until it was actually accepted as the um um, the pastoral Constitution.
0: 13 drafts. Um, I, I believe
3: so. I believe wow. I, I'm open to being corrected on that, but um, but there there's all these what what happens is there's there's different ambiguities that come up in the language and all of, um, that's being used that then the council fathers debate and then they they change. And oftentimes we don't notice um, all of the the changes along the way. And that's why um, right now I think a lot of theologians are going to be translating into English um, the various schematas so we can see the changes along the way. Um, I brought up the D.L. Schindler book on Dignitatis Humanum, which is a declaration on religious liberty, um, and that one went through pretty significant changes um, in how to understand religious liberty and the relation between truth and freedom that we don't really pick up on um in in what we've kind of been told.
1: So now I want to switch gears a little bit and take a look at Lumen Gentium because it's the document that speaks directly about the role of the church in the modern world. And why was that document necessary?
3: Yeah. Well, um Going into the council, I think, uh, I don't know if, if it was John the 23rd, but the, the Vatican, uh, Vatican II is very often understood as an ecclesial council in the sense of coming to a better understanding of the Church. And so, um, that Lumen Gentium is so important, um, um, which means, by the way, light of the nations. Um, uh, it's so important because... Um, it actually helps us have a better understanding of the church um, as mystery grounded in Christ. Um, what the, what happened? Uh, and I can I be corrected on this? Um, but what happened after Trent in response to the Protestant Reformation? Which in the Protestant Reformation there's kind of like a very spiritual understanding of the church, denying kind of the visible um structural aspect of of the church um and so the, there was a stress on the church as kind of an invisible society of all of all believers right and what happened in lumen Gentium was uh to kind of counteract this post-tridentine understanding of the church which which oftentimes understood itself as just kind of a juridical body almost analogous to a state like i don't know the Republic of Venice of some kind. So, a juridical body, and what the Church wanted to say was, no, in Vatican II, the proper understanding of the Church is that the Church is a mystery that's not denying its visible structure and placement in the world with a hierarchy, um, but it's actually to, to ground it in the mystery of Christ. So, Um, there was a very robust ecclesiology that came out of Lumen Gentium. I mean, ecclesiology means understanding of the church that continues to this day.
1: Now, one of the things that uh, I noticed, uh, you know, the tone of Lumen Gentium changes so much from prior... Encyclicals and uh, writings of the Church, because the Church's understanding of their role changed with the Protestant Reformation. Because prior to that, the Church and the monarchies were intertwined to a great extent, and so the Church would, when it spoke, would more dictate with an authoritative voice than try to convince. And the tone of lumen gentium seems to be more trying to convince. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: I mean, you could you could read that into the the, I mean, lumen is one example, but almost every single constitution uh, in Vatican II is kind of has that persuasive uh, tone to it. Yeah, um, uh, the, the, there's there's no denial of the true authoritative voice of the Church. Um, but there's this kind of movement away from a power almost if you want to say imposition like um understanding of that authority. So there's no denial of the truth um, of 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 the church church's dictates, but yeah, it's it's, it's very different style.
1: But I uh, in a way I think sometimes that uh intended to guide that notion of the spirit of Vatican II a little bit more uh, because people felt that there was um, probably the wrong uh, way of looking at this wiggle room because there wasn't this anathema thing where, you know, you do this or you'll be anathema. And so... In the interpretation of the documents, is it possible that people saw this as more leeway in interpretation?
3: Yeah, um, you know, I, I definitely can see, and this is actually something that today a lot of the like online discussion about Vatican II is is oftentimes about this. Um, but just take for example. Um, you know, De Verbum, I believe it's De Verbum 12. Um, in the interpretation of Scripture, I mean, it's very clear that the interpretation of Scripture is under the authoritative body of the Church. So the Church, in its magisterial role, has um, the proper interpretation in the spirit of, of divine Scripture. Now, I definitely can see why there's a lot of wiggle room, uh, theologians, I mean, you had different, various theologians um, interpreting the Council in all these various ways uh, that are not necessarily true, but very hard to argue with based on the ambiguity that's already within the text. Um, but um, that is the, 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 I think the intention of kind of having this rhetorical, more persuasive um, role was, was, was actually important, for the intention of having the faithful re-encounter or re-experience and encounter Jesus Christ as Lord, and to re-encounter and understand themselves as, as in Him, in the Church, um, that oftentimes, I think the risk, too, was, these, was a lot of this um, um, wiggle room of interpretation.
0: I wonder, too, if because the Ressourcement movement was so mm. influential on the council fathers, that because they're going back to patristic sources, well, the patristic sources are very often written in a rhetorical, persuasive style for right. that that age in which they were writing. And so that, that, I think, also probably influenced, to some extent, how these documents were uh, were drafted. What do you think about that?
3: Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. I forgot to mention the Resource mon movement. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, let's just go back to like um, the important uh, figure of that movement. Uh, um, Henri de Lubac and uh, Cardinal Jean Danie- Danielu when they actually um, published um, a lot of the source cre- Chrétien, which was going back to the sources, look at those early Church Fathers and how they um, were on fire for the Gospel and life in Christ, and how they communicated that, yeah, definitely that influenced the style of the Council. Because when uh, de Lubac and Danielu came out with that, and they wanted to have them in middle paperbacks, they wanted—France the France at that time was becoming very communist, right? Mm-hmm. And there are all these terms out there that were indeed Christian terms, but not properly understood in the light of the gospel. And what they wanted to do was persuade the French people of, of the fullness um, of, of the Catholic truth. um, And a better way of understanding these terms that were getting distorted. Mm. Um, And yes, that did have a bearing on the style of the council. So I'm, I'm glad you really brought that up. But, um, Robert and Belli, Father Robert and Belly, has a great article up on Church Life Journal on this Resource Mon movement, which was all intended to return one to the source, namely Christ Himself, to re-experience the kind of this encounter with Christ and life in Him, which was was really one of the main things in the Council. Um, I can't help but think that a lot of um, a lot of the um, church fathers. Um, thought that a lot of the, the Christian practice at the time was kind of a little ossified, maybe like missing a lot of this kind of, the, the you know, the, the, the true spirit um, animating a life of faith, um, and that may be an injustice. Um, but what you'll find is that I think with this style and approach um, and an updating, a giornamento, which is not a capitulation to the world, but a updating of the language so it can speak to modern men and modern women, um, is this kind of re-encounter with Christ, which was at the heart of of the Resource Mon movement. And uh, one of the problems with the Resource Mon movement, though, I think, um, is actually um, a lot of um, uh, wiggle room. uh, Theology wasn't as clearly maybe defined as as you had it in more of a kind of neo-scholastic approach.
1: Robert, uh, we're <laughs> running close to the end of uh, our uh, interview, so in the last couple of minutes, uh, one of the things I wanted you to uh, talk about is uh, the Word on Fire's The Vatican II Collection. Why should people read this?
3: Well, I, I you know, to be honest, I, I think... Uh, um, the, the, the main reason to read it is, um, I love the afterword by Matthew Levering. It's just so good. So if there's one reason, just read uh, Matthew Levering. Um, but I think what's really good about the collection is it not only presents uh, the four constitutions, um, but within um, the constitutions, you see all these different statements, apostolic exhortations and other encyclicals by the post-conciliar popes and how they actually have implemented and understood the, the council. So you kind of, um, you you see how there's an ongoing um, papal interpretation of the council that I think we need to really pay attention to. Um, so it's great. Um, I, I really, really enjoy the text, and there's a great glossary in the back Um <laughs> I don't know if it's great. I put it together, just, but uh, just looking at some of the main uh, figures and um, main terms that people may have a hard time understanding—that's um, uh, um, in the back there—and also with some citations on where to find those those um, those, those key terms in the text themselves.
1: Uh, Again, we were talking with Robert Mixa, uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Fellow of Catholic Education at the Word on Fire Institute. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for being on the show. I think this was so enlightening for um, our listeners. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host for the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Until then, when considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God always round up